You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, an alleged attack by Russia on civilians, including children, at a train station being used for evacuations. The European Commission promises more sanctions and financial aid. We'll have the latest. So, let's get this party started. We'll also get you the latest from Tesla's Cyber Rodeo in Texas, where Elon Musk inaugurated his newest factory. That's next. And the toll of China's lockdowns on its population and its economy. We'll talk about what it means for China's competitive advantage in tech and more later this hour. I want to turn now to the war on Ukraine, a horrific attack on civilians that left at least 50 people dead, including children. Russian troops reportedly bombed a train station that had become a hub, a critical hub for evacuations. Joining us now are Washington correspondent Anne-Marie Hordard. And Anne-Marie seems like widespread condemnation here from the mm. international community. Yes, certainly. As we've seen these horrific scenes, we should note that Russia says this was, uh, they were not responsible for this, but all fingers are pointing to Moscow when it comes to this missile attack on a train station. Emily, as you say, this is where civilians are using to evacuate from eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region specifically, because you do have Russia changing course and really focusing their troops on eastern and southern Ukraine. So a number of capitals around the world are drawing condemnation at Russia for, for this attack, including in Washington. The President of the United States took to Twitter and had this to say. He said the attack on a Ukrainian train station is yet another horrific atrocity committed by Russia, striking civilians who are trying to evacuate and reach safety. He went on to say, as many leaders have, that they will continue their security assistance and weapons deliveries. And we should also note Ursula von der Leyen of Europe was in Kiev herself today, and she said Russia should expect rolling sanctions. So let's talk about those sanctions. What further sanctions could we see out of this? I mean, what is there left to sanction at this point? 
It's a great question. So we have the European package. They finally pretty much signed on the dotted line. And the biggest component of their fifth package coming from the EU is a ban on Russian coal imports. So on one hand, it's not a lot of money. Ursula von der Leyen put in about $4 billion. But it does start to target something that for many European countries was going to be off limits, and that's Russian fossil fuels. Then you have the Polish ambassador saying today in Brussels, we are already preparing work to target Russian oil, Russian natural gas, as well as nuclear fuel. This, Emily, is still the lifeblood and the lifeline Putin has left in terms of the money he's able to get from those sales. Bloomberg Economics says about $320 billion this year alone they will make on sales of commodities. Now, we're also following the aftermath of this cyber attack, again, reportedly from Russia on Finland as they weigh NATO membership. Talk to us about the significance of this. So this comes at a time when really we're seeing the polling shift in days in Finland about whether or not, and they've always kind of played this, keep the door open of what if they were to join NATO. And as they are discussing this out in the open, uh, especially in uh, Finnish media, as well as Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is addressing uh, Finnish lawmakers, you have this cyber attack on a number of their government uh, websites. I was literally just talking to it. I was just looking at my phone, seeing what is fine. Final response was a Finnish official who said they actually are used to these types of cyber attacks and also they are preparing for more. And potentially this is something they need to be preparing for as they discuss whether or not they should join NATO. Russia has made it clear Putin does not want Finland, does not want Sweden in the NATO alliance. All right, Bloomberg's Amory Horden, thank you so much for all of those updates. I do want to switch gears now and get to a story we've been covering all week, and that is Elon Musk. Thursday night, the Tesla CEO held a rodeo event at the opening of his newest factory in Austin, Texas. Let us deliver our first uh, Tesla cars made in Texas. At this opening, which felt more Hollywood than Silicon Valley, Musk announced the production plans around three products that have fallen well behind his original schedule. Joining us now, Bloomberg Sean O'Kane, who was at the event in person. And Sean, looked like a lot of enthusiasm there from the attendees, including I think I saw a video of people crying. Uh, yeah, you're right. There is a lot of uh, <laughs> there are a lot of fans and owners there, but also a lot of employees who I think. We're really happy to see the hard work that they've put in over the last couple of years come to fruition with uh, these first Model Ys that were built at this factory. And honestly, just the factory itself, the fact that they were able to get this up so quickly in such a short amount of time is really something that we don't really see too often here. It's something Tesla did in China uh, with its factory there. But uh, so I think that was uh, all of those things played into overwhelming some people. So does Tesla need this factory to keep up this torrid pace? Yes, frankly. Uh, I mean, they still have some room to grow in China, and that's been a huge boon to them. The China factory is really a main reason why they've been able to grow uh, their valuation and grow their uh, their deliveries, honestly, uh, as much as they have over the last two years. But they are nearly at capacity at the factory in Fremont, California, which Elon Musk has said that they plan to try to find a way to expand, although it will be tough for them to do that. They don't have a lot of, of land there. Um, one thing they do have here in Texas is a lot of land. They bought far more land than even this massive factory is taking up right now. And so they have a lot of room to grow. And even the graphic that he showed last night of the factory and their plans for it includes 
I would say probably about a quarter of it for future products. So even though they are planning to make up to 500,000 Model Ys a year at this factory, there's going to be a lot more room to produce even more here if they can get these new models like the Cybertruck and anything else that Elon Musk has his sleeve uh, out of Elon, the design studio and into production. Elon Musk has made a habit of throwing these launch parties. I've been to some of them at the Fremont plant. But what does he get out of an event like this? Is, is this just, you know, his version of marketing? Yes, <laughs> uh, simply yes. But there are a couple different angles that I think they play with events like this. One of them is simply uh, really just sort of appeasing the people here who have been following along and really helped facilitate this happening in the first place. There was a lot of kudos thrown out to local government officials. Uh, Austin's mayor, Steve Adler, had been invited, although I don't think he attended because he came down with uh, COVID-19 over the weekend. There were Travis County officials there. Um, a lot of local schools and workforce development groups were helping fill the sort of recruiting pipeline into the factory. So it really sort of helps acknowledge all of the work that those people have put into it while also setting them up for a good relationship moving forward. Uh, and then on top of that, it's really just, you know, this is part of what feeds the beast of Tesla. You get these sort of quarterly events or maybe once or twice a year, and they sort of feed back into the excitement, even though he didn't really say too much that was all that newsworthy compared to some of the right. other speeches he's given in the past. Meantime, a different reaction to Elon Musk at a different company, and that is Twitter. We're hearing that some Twitter employees not happy about Elon Musk joining the board, certainly not crying in jubilation. Um, CEO Parag Agarwal says he's going to address the issue uh, next week, potentially with an AMA with Elon Musk himself. What are you hearing about this? Uh, I mean, it's from what we understand about the reaction that the Twitter employees has had, it's, you know, in some ways it's kind of nice to see because we don't see people say no to Elon a lot, at least within his orbits. I mean, people obviously have strong opinions about him and negative opinions about him, but within the companies that he runs and among the sort of executive ranks that he operates, we don't see a lot of pushback, at least publicly. And so to hear that the employees of Twitter were sort of standing up a little bit and saying, hey, you know, Elon's behavior is very sort of public behavior uh, on this platform and uh, has not really been in line with sort of the values that Parag's been expressing he wants Twitter to carry forward. And so they have some concerns about what that means and, and what it means for the platform's future to have someone on the board and controlling so much of the company who seems to be able to operate outside the bounds of what they really want to allow on the platform. Okay. Well, certainly a lot of unanswered questions there. Bloomberg, Sean O'Kane, thank you. I'm here in my apartment in Shanghai in the last day, supposedly the last day of my lockdown, but it looks like it's going to be extended. And my biggest concern right now is food. Uh, I'm running short of everything, and I want to give you a little peek inside my refrigerator. It may not look so bad, but I got, I got to tell you, a lot of stuff is pretty old. Um, got milk here. The expiration date is April 1st. The bread's expiration date is March 30th. And today is April 6th. Thank God I still have a little bit of wine because I think I'm gonna need it. So the biggest concern right now for a lot of people is how to get food. Um, for us, um, we have to order online uh, through this one grocery app called Ding Dong Mai Chai. Basically in the evening, uh, usually after 9 p.m., you go into the app and see what's available. And as you can see, a lot of uh, fruit, meat, and vegetables already gone. 
The big problem seems to be we can't get groceries delivered to our apartment because there's a lack of uh, drivers delivering food in general because of the lockdown. The number of cases continues to rise in Shanghai and Jilin province. Both areas are struggling with the economic and personal ramifications of the lockdowns, with food shortages, a lack of medical care, and shuttered manufacturing plants bringing misery to residents. Shanghai remains the hotspot for the current flare-up, despite indefinitely extending a sweeping lockdown of its 25 million people. Originally intended to be carried out in two parts, the rising number of infections led to a continuation of the restrictions in the eastern portion of the city that were initially expected to be lifted last week. So uh, one question that I'm getting asked is uh, why didn't I uh, why didn't I, I, I stock up on more food? Well, well, first is you know we were told that my phase of lockdown would last from uh, Friday through uh, Tuesday, and it's already Wednesday. Uh, didn't know that it was going to be extended. Obviously, uh, I, I could have gotten more meat and vegetables, but even before the lockdown, it was, it was kind of hard to find. You know, I still have a lot of instant noodles, spam, and. The odd carrot. The odd carrot. Bloomberg's Alan Wan there under lockdown, like many across Shanghai and greater China. This amidst hearts government measures to contain the country's latest COVID outbreak. It's left people struggling to eat, get food, essential supplies, and is putting even more pressure on an already stressed supply chain. Let's talk about all of this and more with Anya Manuel, executive director of the Aspen Security Forum. Anya, that's just one example of the human toll. This is taking, what's your take on this at scale? What this means for China? What this means for its economy? Yeah, nice to see you, Emily. It means that China's zero COVID policy is coming apart at the seams. You know, you saw Q4 of 2021, the growth rate for Chinese economy was about 4%. That's not as high as they wanted. This year, they, they think they're going to grow at 5.5%, but if they keep having these extreme lockdowns, and I thought Alan's story was harrowing, I don't think you would achieve those kinds of growth rates. Now, we know lots of American firms who are delivering food to their employees for exactly that reason. And of course, it just hits all of the supply chains again. The lockdowns, the road closures, they're affecting factories as well. Tesla and Volkswagen, for instance, they've suspended work at factories there. Do you see this having a long-term impact on China's ability to attract global businesses, global manufacturing? Yeah, maybe not in the in the long term, but certainly in the medium term. You know, it's very hard to run a business in China if every couple of months it's going to get shut down again. You talked about the factories. You know, Shanghai Disneyland is closed again. Foxconn, Unimicron, Eson, all of these suppliers to big American tech firms are once again shut down, which makes it really hard. And I think it just accelerates the tech decoupling you see already with Western firms increasingly saying, well, maybe we should look to the rest of Asia or we should diversify not entirely away from China, but we need to hedge our bets a little bit. And I think this is going to accelerate that trend. There's already been a lot of pressure on Chinese tech companies because of uh, the crackdown by the Chinese government on tech companies in particular. We've seen the Chinese government perhaps trying to dial some of that back, saying they're going to give U.S. regulators more information about these companies. But do you see this having a more sustained impact on China's tech world and its competitiveness? It, it does. It has a huge impact, but not just the lockdowns. It's sort of everything is swinging in the direction of decoupling. I mean, you saw these huge crackdowns on Chinese tech last year. You and I talked about them, you know, um, delisting people, telling people they can't 
do business in the United States under certain circumstances. And then, of course, it's coming from the U.S. too. You mentioned the new SEC rule, which basically says, you know, if you're a Chinese company, you got to follow U.S. accounting principles. Uh, they've got three years now to comply. But other than that, if you don't comply, we're going to delist you. So you just see this trend happening in every direction. And I think, Emily, it will continue. Now, we still haven't seen a distinct steer from China and its position on Russia. And, of course, China is under a lot of pressure from the international community. What do you expect to happen there? And how do you expect that to influence the U.S. relationship with China and China's relationship with the rest of the world? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question. It's been really interesting to see because I think Xi Jinping and his team were surprised by how brutal and gruesome Putin's invasion of Ukraine has been. And there was vacillating for a week or two. Now the politics of China has come out solidly in favor of Russia. If you look at what's censored on the Chinese Internet, anything pro-Ukraine is censored and taken down immediately. All of the Russian propaganda gets through. So on the political side, they're with the Russians. On the business side, not so much. I mean, so far, we've heard anecdotally that all of the big Chinese tech firms are complying with Western sanctions on China, as are the big Chinese banks, even though their government is saying, hey, you should be doing what you can to support the Russians. I mean, a perfect example is Didi. Um, the, the big taxi service, the sort of Uber of China, announced right away they were closing in Russia. And then after pressure from the Chinese government, they started back up their Russian operations. So what do you think so this means quickly for the longer term then? Uh, you know, is it, is it status quo for China's relationship with the rest of the world? Or could we see a, a shift? Yeah, I think China will stay just below the level where they're going to be subject to secondary sanctions from the U.S. and Europe. And so they'll keep playing this game. They'll probably buy a little bit more oil from Russia. They'll try to help their Russian friends as much as possible without really running afoul with what the rest of the world wants. Because if you remember, Emily, this is the year that Xi Jinping wants to be voted the forever leader of China. So he needs things to be fairly calm, at least until the fall. All right, Anya Manuel, always appreciate your analysis and insights here, Executive Director of the Aspen Security Forum. Thank you. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. 
a brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. in Bessemer, Alabama voted 993 to 875 against forming a union. That result is now being challenged. A labor group claims Amazon interfered with the election by prohibiting employees from talking about the union during work hours or posting about it. Joining us now, Bloomberg's Spencer Soper. Spencer, what exactly is this labor union expressing here? Uh, yeah, so they... They're saying that Amazon was... Uh, inconsistent with its rules that it it allowed anti-union employees to discuss you know their uh reasons for not wanting the union in workspaces and that they could display anti-union literature but that similar things done by employees who are on the pro-union side were discouraged and prohibited um and that some people were even uh fired you know for for being pro-union so that's the beef on the union side even though amazon appears to have won this there's still a, uh, several uh, votes, you know, several hundred votes that were disputed that that could be counted and could uh, potentially tip the tide of the election the other way. And so in to preempt that, Amazon actually filed its own own objections as well, basically saying a lot of similar things as the union. So we're just in now, a lot of legal maneuvering right now. This vote was already a do over. I mean, how likely is it there could be another do over? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, how many, <laughs> how long is this going to go on? Um, so, time will tell. Especially if uh, if those challenge ballots um, make a difference, because th that first vote was quite decisive. I mean, the the union lost handily, um, but the, the the National Labor Relations Board said, "Look, Amazon, you played dirty pool. We got to do it over." And now the the, the gap is is uh, narrowed significantly. So okay. um, I think the, the first thing watching Hang on. is that these contested ballots change things. Spencer, we're just getting a headline that Amazon has challenged the union win in the New York election. Remember, the result was reversed in that election that happened the very same day in New York. Now Amazon is challenging that. Quickly, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, it was expected. Um, there's going to be a lot of legal maneuverings and things are moving uh, very fast right now. But Amazon is basically trying to argue that the turnout was very small in, in that election and that a majority of workers did not vote for the union, that really you had a small a small voter turnout. And they're alleging that the National Labor Relations Board actually tarnished this process by getting a little bit too deeply involved and workers may have felt like the, like the government was actually advocating for the union. Wow, so now we're looking at both votes being challenged, but for different reasons. Uh, Bloomberg Spencer Soper, who covers Amazon for us. Spencer, I'm sure you will keep us up to date. Thank you. Thank you, sir. 
Taurus Falcon, go Dragon. Godspeed, Axiom 1. There it is, the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket taking off at 11.17 a.m. Eastern Time from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida in its first private mission to the International Space Station. Let's bring in our own Ed Ludlow now, who attended the launch, to talk about just how big a milestone this is in the private space race. Ed, bring us the details from the ground. How's the crew? Right. You know, it was just another flawless execution by SpaceX. The crew are well. After about two hours aboard the capsule in that orbit or the orbital path, they took off their spacesuits, Em, and they had their first space meal. But as you know, it's a 20-hour trip from here in the Cape up to the International Space Station. They're due to dock at around 9.30 a.m. Eastern time on Saturday, and everything went as planned. You know, as you know, I sat here in the thunder and lightning on Thursday night, but the weather really cleared, cleared up. Some high-pressure brought cold, dry air into the equation, and SpaceX were able to lift off on schedule the Friday morning. So uh, let's talk about what's going to happen on the ISS. Are they going to meet Russian astronauts? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this has been the question, right? The backdrop is the tensions between the United States and Russia because of the war in Ukraine. And there are three Russian cosmonauts aboard. I spoke to a number of NASA officials who, officials who told me that if the Russians invited the private astronauts for dinner, they could go across to that side of the ISS and have dinner. But there's bigger issues here. Here's what Bill Nelson, administrator of NASA, had to say. Even with the terrible things that Vladimir Putin is putting on the Ukrainian people, I expect the professional relationship between astronauts and cosmonauts to continue. The point that Bill Nelson made there is the same that Kathy Leaders made on Thursday, that whatever's happening down here on Earth, in space there's peace, and there is a professional relationship between NASA and Russia's space agency, Roscosmos, and frankly, not, none of the officials I spoke to thought that that was going to change in the near term. So give us the bigger picture here, Ed. Ed, uh, Axiom isn't just about sending rich people to space, though they did confirm with us yesterday that exactly. a ticket cost $55 million. What are the bigger ambitions they here? Did. Yeah, you're spot on, Em. You know, part of this Axiom plan is to send their own private international space station module up in 2024. That module attaches to the existing international space station, and they develop it and upgrade it over time. Because as you know, the ISS has a shelf life. It's due to be de decommissioned in 2030, 2031, and then deorbited to crash into the ocean somewhere here on planet Earth. So this is about NASA passing the battle on to the private sector. It costs NASA four billion US dollars a year to maintain and upgrade ISS. And what they want to do is have the private sector take on that burden, that cost burden, but also the development and upkeep burden. So in the future, we have private or commercial space stations in low Earth orbit. That frees up money for NASA to do other things. I and mean, as you know, the big priority for NASA is the moon and then Mars. And what about SpaceX itself? We just saw Elon Musk inaugurate a Tesla factory in Austin. He's very busy, yeah. uh, it seems, with his new Twitter board membership. You know, what does this mean for, for the SpaceX part of Elon Musk's empire? 
You know, the, the Axiom mission and being here at the Kennedy Space Center over the last few days has been interesting because SpaceX is not preoccupied with these kind of smaller objectives in their eyes of getting folks to and from Earth to the International Space Station. You know, they have these contracts with NASA. They were just awarded more missions by NASA. But as you know, Elon Musk has his sights set on Mars. They're developing the next generation of launch system in Starship. They hope to test an orbital test of Starship at some point in the next six months and their ambitions are greater than that. But in the meantime, this is another example of SpaceX dominating the market for launch to orbit. You know, they account for 80% of the payload that is sent from Earth into space right now. We talk a lot about Russia and China as space superpowers alongside the United States. Really, it's SpaceX that dominates this market. And alongside satellite launch with Starlink and taking satellites for third parties, they're making money off this. We think this is a good moneymaker for them. And as we know from your interview on Thursday, right, Axiom is sold out for AX2, AX3, and they're probably going to be sold out pretty soon for AX4. So it's an interesting dynamic for SpaceX that has much bigger picture designs. All right, Ed Ludlow on the ground in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Ed, thank you so much for your coverage from there and for the launch throughout the day. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip. Who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
crypto report now and Bitcoin ending the week on a down note, trading lower for the fifth consecutive day. Even as Bitcoin 2022, one of the crypto industry's biggest conferences, is drawing to a close in Miami. I want to bring in our crypto contributor, Shanali Bostic, now for more. Shanali, what's your read on this? Well, there's a few things here, Emily, and we've been talking about it all year. What is the catalyst? What is going to drive Bitcoin higher than not only this year, but where it was last year? We have five straight days, as you said, of declines. We are back down to 42600 or $700 or so. Remember, throughout March, we got a little higher than that. We did get to 47000 touched 48000 But, you know, we are above 40000 So we have hit kind of a, a floor here. There's not that same fear of things really going much lower. There's a lot of conversations about legitimizing the asset, more companies using the Lightning Network. That was a huge story this week. But at the end of the day, it's not just about the same people who are picking up Bitcoin, the Lightning Network, at a marginal rate. This is going to be about countries and companies adopting Bitcoin at a much bigger rate as the asset class starts to mature. All right, uh, Shanali, stay with us. I want to bring in our next guest, who is actually joining us from Bitcoin 2022 in Miami, Blockstream CEO Adam Back. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. You've been a player in this industry for such a long time, and I'm so curious, what's the mood there um, after the many, many years you've been in the crypto industry, and, and how much do you think is changing in this moment? Well, it's uh, a much bigger conference for Bitcoin than I've seen before. I think something like 25,000 people present, a very big venue, very high production values. So it's uh, introducing Bitcoin to many more attenders and a wider audience. You're working on, on something new and interesting with Block and powered by Tesla Solar, a new mine. Talk to us about, you know, what are the details, where it will be located, what you'll be doing there, and what it means from an energy perspective. Right. So it's um, a joint project between Blockstream and Block, formerly known as Square. And Tesla is building the solar uh, infrastructure and also providing the Tesla uh, gigapack, which is a battery. So it's actually solar and battery, so that it, it runs, you know, not just during the day. And what that means for the energy infrastructure is that it's a first step for us to prove out the thesis that a number of people have put forward, and we thought we would go from theory to practice and actually build it alongside uh, Block. And that is that um, Bitcoin mining can actually help make new power projects, new green power projects, more cost-effective, make them more profitable and therefore easier to finance mm -hmm. and basically build the energy infrastructure for the future. Uh, Adam, how do you feel about the ability of Bitcoin to become more energy efficient, especially as the merge comes for Ethereum and the Ethereum is really so focused on energy efficiency? Yeah, I think that's um, actually a mistake in the sense that if, if we look back to gold historically, um, Society looks for a, a hard money, and what, what made gold a good money was the relative scarcity and the sort of inherent cost of uh, extracting more, mining more, that comes with scarcity. And so something which doesn't have any inherent scarcity effectively becomes similar to a share in a company managed by some officers of the company, or like a, a, a fiat currency, like the US dollar or the euro, which is managed by a monetary policy committee. So I think it's very difficult to imagine that kind of currency, you know, the old coins and so forth, 
reaching um, global acceptance as a, as a new digital gold. You know, I'm also curious, you mentioned your work with the block. I'm wondering what you think. We interviewed also Elizabeth Stark of Lightning Labs. Jack Dorsey is a backer there for her, uh, for, for her company. And I'm wondering what impact you think Jack Dorsey overall is going to have on the adoption of Bitcoin across the world? Well, it's pretty interesting. I think sometime last year he, he made the observation that he thought the most uh, important and useful place for him to use his time uh, on, on Earth is uh, with Bitcoin, and so you know promptly he stepped down as CEO of Twitter and actually devoted his energies to to Bitcoin. So I think that's very positive. I want to double down, Adam, on your thoughts on Ethereum. Your work was in that original white paper written by Satoshi Nakamoto all those many years ago. If you're not bullish on Ethereum, then how do you see the crypto market actually playing out? Like, where are we in the next 10 years? Um, well, I think Bitcoin is the investable asset class, and the other sort of smart contract cryptocurrencies, are, of which there are many competing, um, are more like uh, startups or services, and not not really an asset class. I, I think personally that the um, utility token concept is is mispriced, and that uh, the value, the fundamental value of those tokens, should be much lower. So there's a an investor called John Pfeffer who wrote an analyst report on this topic and just, just looked at the business economics from an ex-KKR investor perspective of such chains and the fundamental business value of the utility tokens and concluded that they should be sort of just-in-time bought. It doesn't make sense economically to keep inventory. So I think the valuations are sort of out of kilter with the fundamental value and sort of driven, sort of kept afloat by speculation, basically. Interestingly, also, I want to talk more about the energy efficiency aspect of this because the Tesla Megapack is powering a Bitcoin mining facility at a box stream mining site. What impact do you think Elon Musk will have on the future of Bitcoin moving forward? Um, well, I think he's famously acquired Bitcoin, uh, I believe he said himself, and through a number of his companies. So he's certainly a big uh, holder, a long-term holder. And, you know, we're excited to um, bring Tesla into into the mining space via the acquisition of the Megapack and the, the installation by Tesla of the solar arrays. I'm curious what you make of the evolving relationship uh, of Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey, given, you know, Elon, you know, both of them playing a big role in the crypto community, crypto Twitter, a huge community, and Elon Musk now joining the board of Twitter with Jack Dorsey's support as the largest shareholder. Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm uh, quite positive on Elon joining Twitter's board because, um, there were some unfortunate incidents during the last few years with Twitter's kind of content mediation, deplatforming, and that kind of thing got pretty controversial. And I think Elon's views on, on that direction are similar to my own, so I'm hoping for him to be a positive improvement uh, for Twitter. Uh, Adam, you mentioned earlier about the valuations that we're seeing in Bitcoin today uh, artificially held to where it is right now. So where do you think it goes to the end of the year and what will take it there? Um, well, uh, it's, it's kind of surprising to me in a sense that it's already not a lot higher because the many of the on-chain metrics and the news flow you know, throughout the year are 
sort of bullish indicators. You know, the, the number of coins, net coins moving off exchanges, which indicates uh, large buyers buying and storing. The number of coins left on exchange to, to be the pool of potentially bought coins. Uh, the news flow of, you know, new ETFs in various countries, new financial institutions providing Bitcoin-related uh, financial instruments. Um, so there's a lot of uh, kind of positive news flow. And I, I think that, uh, you know, the current Bitcoin price range is to do with similar factors that affect the wider market, i.e., you know, Ukraine and uh, the COVID economic effects and so forth. Blockstream CEO, Adam Back, pleasure to have you, as always, along with our very own Shanali Basik. Thank you both. Well, also to come out of the Bitcoin conference, billionaire entrepreneur Peter Thiel called Warren Buffett, Jamie Dimon, and Larry Fink members of a finance gerontocracy. He said they're opposed to a revolutionary youth movement, quote unquote, that embraces Bitcoin. Thiel blamed the finance titans for the digital currency's failure to hit $100,000 or get even close. For the third year in a row, Apple will hold its annual developer conference, WWDC, virtually. That means developers and Apple watchers will need to tune in online to watch the introduction of iOS 16, watchOS 9, tvOS 16, macOS 13, and other new software and services. The one new wrinkle this year is that Apple will allow a small number of students, developers, and members of the press to watch the keynote videos from Apple headquarters. Still, all developer sessions and other aspects of the conference will be online only. Despite its virtual nature, I'm still expecting a fairly jam-packed conference. I'm expecting a fairly significant update with iOS 16, codenamed Sydney, including changes to notifications. There also should be major fitness tracking and health upgrades for the Apple Watch. But for those expecting some major iOS design overhaul, the last being about a decade ago with iOS 7, I wouldn't hold my breath, at least for this year. Apple's also likely to launch some new Macs in the WWDC timeframe, and this may include a major revamp to the MacBook Air. In fact, that new Air will be the biggest upgrade to the product in its history. Apple has a history of announcing new Macs at the conference, including when it introduced the transition from Intel to Apple Silicon two years ago. I'm also still expecting Apple to hold off on showcasing its mixed reality headset hardware until later this year or next year at the earliest. Still, maybe we'll see a preview of some new AR and VR software to get the show rolling. I'm Mark Gurman. This is Power On. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Mark's weekly Power On newsletter, Bloomberg.com. Well, sell Robinhood. That is the message from Goldman Sachs. It comes less than a year since Robinhood's much-hyped IPO, which was led by Goldman. The news caused the stock to sink even lower, down more than 80% from its post-IPO record high. For more on what it all means, I'm joined by Bloomberg's Annie Massa. So why is Goldman, of all companies, saying sell now? So it's a bit of a, an awkward situation because Goldman did lead the Robinhood IPO, but Goldman's analysts have downgraded now the stock um, to a sell from neutral. And what they said is that the path to profitability is looking pretty fraught for Robinhood, and it would take a lot for this company to achieve profitability by 2023. So what's changed since the IPO? Has something gone wrong? 
The retail trading environment has changed a lot, even in the past year. We saw an enormous boom in retail trading that happened over the course of the pandemic and really escalated during the GameStop run-up that happened in early 2021. That was all happening in the lead-up to Robinhood's IPO, which happened in July of last year. What's happened in the intervening months is retail trading activity has continued to taper off, and now retail trading is making up more like 17% of equities overall market volume, where you saw it higher, more like 24% in those feverish days of the meme stock run-up. So uh, Robinhood's contending with this question of how it will earn money beyond just sheer transaction volume. Where is Robinhood saying the growth is going to come from? I know they've been talking up crypto. In fact, they've actually been doing that since the IPO, building out crypto products. Could that be it? Yeah. What, one thing that Robinhood has pitched, as many fintechs have, is the idea that it can become more like a financial supermarket for its customers, offering much more than just mere trading and moving into new areas, including retirement accounts, crypto, expanding its crypto offering, as you mentioned. And it has been making strides towards some of those goals. So just this week, uh, Robinhood did open up its crypto wallets product. Uh, It had a wait list going, and it's beginning to offer that product now. And it, it is working towards those other, some of those other pitched products, such as um, retirement accounts. But the big question remains whether Robinhood customers want all those products from Robinhood specifically, or whether they might be getting those services from other apps. Um, and it's a it's a big part of Robinhood's growth strategy to sell their customers on more than trading all day. Now, the Robinhood bulls that are still out there talk about Gen Z and the future of, of a rising generation that's going to be investing more. Could that be Robinhood's savior quickly? It, it could be, but it really depends. Right now, they're very dependent on trading volumes, and they want to diversify away from that, but the question remains whether they can and whether the customers will come when they deliver those new products. All right, Bloomberg's Annie Massa on Robinhood's struggles. Thank you so much, Annie, for that analysis. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.